Welcome to Dig It. This is Edge with my co-host Corey Lynn of Corey's Digs. And today we have a special guest, investigative journalist and researcher Elza Van Hamlin is back to share her latest research on lab-grown meat. Welcome, Elza. Hi, Edge. Nice to be here again. So glad to have you. Yeah, this is going to be fantastic. I've been anxious for this one to be completed, and it's published over on the Solari Report, which is subscriber only, but certainly we can talk about it here. And uh, God, there's about 20 different things I want to go over. So we're going to try and cram as much in as we can. It's uh, well, because you've covered an area I haven't had time to even dig into yet. And I haven't seen anyone else cover this, which is getting to the nitty gritty of how they actually process the lab grown meat. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting stuff, which leads us to other, to draw other conclusions that we, at least I hadn't necessarily thought of prior to your research. So we'll go over that too. Um, but before we get into it, you know, I love your, I love your headline, pharma food. That's just <laughs> perfect. And um, if you want to just kind of explain <clears throat> the difference, you know, we've got plant-based, we've got lab-grown, cell-grown, like all the different terms they use, and then GMO, if you want to kind of just get into that a little bit before we start diving into the, to the process and funding and all that good stuff. Ah, good. Yeah, so um, so it was really almost sometimes getting lost a little bit in all the names that they use. Mm -hmm. So meat is not meat anymore, it's protein. And then all these new food technologies is also called food tech. But food, food tech is also home delivery uh, um, of, <laughs> of kids. So, so there was a lot of jargon to dive into, but while trying to understand what they do when they make lab-grown meat is um, that they use the exact same process as they use when they culture cell, uh, when they culture viruses for vaccines, for example. And then there, I ran into another technology that's used also in the biotech sector, and this has been used since the 70s, is they genetically uh, manipulate bacteria. They insert um, an isolated uh, gene of insulin, of human insulin into a bacterium, and then they culture the bacteria. And then you get, a, then these bacteria, they produce the insulin and that's the medication that a lot of diabetes patients use. Mm, but what they started doing is to apply this whole process to the whole food sector and to industry. So when they apply it in different ways, it's called precision fermentation, but mm. it's genetically modified bacteria that produce milk or cheese or proteins, but they can also produce fertilizer or industrial chemicals. And so there's this report by McKinsey, it's called the bio revolution, where they, um, where they say, well, perhaps even 60% of all the materials in the economy can be produced in this way. And they see, they see major opportunities, especially in the food sector. So then uh -huh. if you read these food sector reports and they say, well, the cow is really very inefficient. This is really the way we should start producing food proteins. But how did I get to this pharma food was 
yeah, while reading this, basically both of these processes are the same, are processes to produce biotech pharmaceuticals. And for a while I was thinking, what is this? Like if, if I get a piece of meat from the supermarket, I cannot grow, grow a cow from this. So how can you, how can you grow cells in a Petri dish? That was my big kind of research start question. Right. And I thought, is this, is this voodoo food? Like how did it, <laughs> did it bring the dead to life? Or, or kind of like you think of the Frankenstein myth, but Frankenstein food has been used for GMOs uh, so much already. And at some point I thought, this is pharma food. So that's that's how I, yeah. Does this explain enough about the Jargon? Um, oh yeah, yeah. And they use, um, they use terms like uh, breeding now, right? Yes. They make- yeah, I mean, there's just, there's, and, and I love that in your report, because you break down all the different terminology, um, and, and it's meant to confuse people, so they right. don't know what it is, they don't know what they're consuming, which they're still battling over how to label it exactly. Um, That's a very important one, because there yes. are actually quite a lot of uh, labeling lawsuits where consumer protection organizations say, well, it should be called lab culture meat or it, it lab culture, cell culture, like it should not be called meat. Like consumers need to be able to recognize that this is a completely new thing and this is not real meat. And uh, the lab meat advocacy, such as the Good Food Institute, they say, well, we shouldn't be too picky. Like, like they shouldn't be. Uh, they call it. Um, they call it a form of censorship if they're not a call, uh, allowed to call these products meat. And but they use a lot of terms to confuse. Like, for example, the cell culture meat. Like when you think about culture, then yogurt is kind of a culture. So right. it's like it's a cultured product. We eat these products all the time, or precision fermentation. Uh, beer and wine are fermented products or kimchi or miso. So you think they, they also sell it in this way. Well, it's a fermentation product. This is healthy. But they don't tell you that's a fermentation product by genetically modified bacteria. And they, right. they you come across this all the time where they use these 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 terms that we are familiar with. Uh, mm-hmm. but it's completely opposite from what you think it is. Right. And they do that in all their agendas, right? I mean, they've been doing that with the education system for decades, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they, they disguise it under all kinds of fluff to confuse and mislead. So, so let me ask you this. Um, I know you, you dove into the beginning, like where this started or who this started with. Can you tell mm-hmm. us that part and then who the top countries are that are leading the way with this? And then we'll dive into the process part of it. Okay. So the real beginning was somewhere around 2000. There was a NASA project or a NASA funded project where they wanted to see if they could culture goldfish cells. uh, for to produce food on space journeys because you cannot bring an endless supply on of food into a spaceship so they wanted to know if they could set up their own production system so that was the real first project and then i guess there were a number of researchers kind of interested in it but there was no funding for it and no real interest 
And then I think it was 2006 or seven, the NGO New Harvest was founded. And this NGO was really pivotal to set the the whole sector on the map. And they state this themselves in one of their Substack articles. Because what they did, they were making sure that the uh, that the researchers that wanted to work on this, that they were attracting funding. They organized a number of pivotal conferences where these worldwide researchers were being uh, put in contact together and could exchange information. The person who founded this NGO, his name is Jason Metheny, and he is currently the CEO of the Rent Corporation. Mm-hmm. And he has... Um, he has a very interesting resume. Like um, he has multiple degrees from the John Hopkins University. He did a PhD study for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Hmm. He's worked at ERPA, at DARPA. And he worked at the Oxford Institute uh, for the Future of Humanities I- I- Institute. We're getting all the top dogs in there on that resume. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, wow. but, but when I read this resume, it's like I, I, I thought like I cannot just post somebody's resume, but just reading it. Think, <laughs> why is this person or why are all these agencies that he's affiliated with? Why would it be important for them to put this product on the market? Exactly. Oh, and I, I can't wait to get into our theories after all of this because it completely <laughs> changed my theories on this. Um, some but stuff yes. I've been pondering for quite a while. But yes, the uh, ties to the intelligence community that this guy has and with him being in this p- pivotal position to really kind of launch this whole industry, it really does raise a lot of questions as to the motivations and who's really behind it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so who are our top countries that are leading the way? I mean, I, I know some of this, but but you've definitely done, you know, much deeper digs here. So where are we at right now as far as countries leading the way on this? It's really the U.S. and Israel. So mm-hmm. the, the U.S. has most of the funding and a lot of the funding is also coming from the Middle East. So it's interesting to see that countries that are not self-sufficient in food, such as the Middle East, Singapore and China, that they're interested in this type of food production because they think um, uh, now I don't need to secure imports, but we 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 can if if we set up our own factories, we can do this in our own way. Right. And um, but they they are not doing the innovation. The most the most startups are in the U.S. and then secondary the, uh, Europe and Israel. But if you look at the size of Israel, they really have um, a lot of startups. And then if you look at the market assessment, the consu- the consumers are basically really not interested in trying this. And the response to the consumer polls differ a lot based on the t- the way they phrase the question but in most of these polls it's very clear that they want to market this to the chinese consumer they they are more open to it they're a little bit less free to i think so yeah. um so and yeah. china has has some of their own reasons why they may be more interested in it because of the the population there that they have to feed mm-hmm. right Yes, it's it's a it, this type of uh, food is uh, part of their five years plans. 
so new food technologies, including uh, lab-grown meats. And and explain what what food hubs are to people. Oh, um, basically, yeah. So so basically, these are kind of like networks set up by the World Economic Forum, and the Netherlands is host to the to to the World Coordinating Center. But these hubs are based in local re regions and they start organizing all the stakeholders in the region to work on these types of products and influence local policies. But it's really globally coordinated and it's a very technocratic agenda that they're implementing. So let's get into the nitty gritty of what you've discovered as to what it looks like inside one of these facilities where they're creating this meat they want us to allegedly eat <laughs> where do you want to start so, so, <laughs> so let's I start with to... the hazmat suits now <laughs> <laughs> the bioreactors <laughs> well so so i think you kind of got into the cell culture lines of it and mm -hmm. um Take us through the kind of the step-by-step -step process of what that looks like. So, yeah, I have to explain here too. So, so I realized that before explaining what, uh, how the process works, I needed to explain a lot of other things. Uh, so, so before the the how do they make this section? There's a section on uh, pharma pharmacological technologies. And the other one is what I call the transhumanist toolbox, because basically they are applying genetic engineering every step of the way. But what happens is that uh, first you need um, a, you need cells, and cells need to be alive because you cannot uh, culture dead cells. So you need to have a biopsy. You need some cells from a live animal. And it's possible to culture, uh, this is called primary cells. If you take some a, a cell biopsy from a live animal and you culture that, that's a primary cell culture. But there's an issue with that because the cells don't proliferate so much and they die pretty quickly. This is called senescence. And so what did they do in the pharmaceutical industry is that they create what they call cell lines so when do gross cells uh, in a body grow? That is when a fetus is growing. So fetal or uh, cells, they, they proliferate pretty, pretty quickly and they're kind of still in an undefined state, which is also positive because you can change them into different cell types. And, or you have cancer cells. So one of the most famous cell lines is called the HeLa cell line. That was a, a taken from a cancer from Henrietta Lacks. And uh, she had a very aggressive cervical cancer. And these cells are still alive today. And that's, that cell line is, I don't know, if, wow. taken in the early 70s. That was the first cell line. Wow. So if they want to make a cell line out of real cells, then they are genetically or otherwise manipulating it to make them uh, proliferate. And basically you're making these cells cancerous then. Wow. So they, um, so that kind of raises questions about eating cell lines. There are no clinical trials, you know, about if right. it's healthy <laughs> to eat these so what happens then is that you want to culture these cells and um, they and 
this is first done in like a petri dish, like in very small flasks, because these cells can dive pretty quickly. And the cells then need um, what they call um, a cell culture medium, because normally in your body, your cells, they are part of like a vessel system. They, they have a blood flow uh, for nutrients. So, uh, so cells, they don't grow easily in a flask. So you need a medium that mimics blood, but also, also often contains real blood. So this is called fetal bovine serum. Mm. And it is tapped from a calf fetuses that are alive and it's tapped directly from their heart while they're still alive. Wow. Um, and um, and that stuff is considered useful because apparently like blood has, it has vitamins in it. It has minerals. It has what they call growth factors. It's a little bit different, I believe, from hormones, but it has all these substances that that the cells need. And if you cannot use real blood, because of course this lab-grown meat is being promoted as uh, animal-friendly and slaughter-free and pain-free, Mm, and you mm-hmm. cannot hold up that story if you use fetal bovine serum. Right. And and uh, if you eat that, there is a risk of prion disease, which is also not so um, mad cow disease. Mm. Um, but if they don't want to use that, you need an artificial substitute. And what they do then is using the precision fermentation to either manipulate cells or bacteria or other microorganisms so that these will produce the cell culture medium. So it's either blood that's harvested in an absolutely gruesome manner, or it's genetic, genetically manipulated stuff. Uh, Oh, they also use something that's called... Uh, molecular farming and then they genetically manipulate plants so that they start producing animal proteins wow um and what happens then if you have that cell culture and the medium first it needs to proliferate and then it kind of uh is upgraded in new bigger batches each time so that's called like a bioreactor and when it has proliferated enough, you want these cells to turn into the cell type that is like like a muscle cell that you would usually eat. So you need a different kind of medium again. And mm. then finally, when you have like a very large batch of cells, then it needs to be harvested because what you have is a cell slurry with cells and water. And this cell slurry is then made into a meat product. And so, so for the first hamburger that cost, that was funded by Sergey Brin, the one of the co-founders of Google, it cost mm. more than two hundred thousand dollar. Wow, two hundred thousand dollar burger. And wow. they used breadcrumbs and herbs to <laughs> to add the taste and texture. Oh my gosh! Oh my god! Also, and- don't you? Uh, d- d- there's a part in there, a section in there, where you talk about nanotech and uh, tissue engineering to kind of give it that structure. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so w what they do now, now mostly is this process that I just described, but because they want to give it a real structure, then uh, they are exploring multiple ways to, to create this structure. And these are uh, basically, it's nanotechnology. So it, it they can use uh, beads, they can use hydrogels, which is kind of concerning because hydrogels are also used for targeted uh, medication delivery. And um, they can use nanofibers or uh, kind of like sponge-like nanomaterial. And this is this is the technology that is used in uh, what they call tissue engineering or regenerative medicine. And regenerative medicine looks at how if like an organ is damaged, how you can use this type of uh, technology to regrow grow an organ, uh, for example. But in the tissue engineering, you don't need to eat that stuff. So all the solutions that are currently on the market are, most of them are not edible. They're exploring ways to make it edible, but um, yeah, it's not, it's not there yet. And one patent that I looked at that was from Matrix Meat. So the CEO was interviewed somewhere and he said, yeah, all the, our structures are edible. And then I just looked up one of their patents on the internet and it had like a laundry list of chemicals. The first was nylon. And wow. then in the one of the following steps, it was like when it comes in contact with saliva, it uh, evaporates in your mouth and it becomes, I don't know, biodegradable. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. I thought if they is, this is what they mean with by edible, like nylon is not something um, that's on my list of edible substances. Yeah. Right, and when you <laughs> when you said lipid nanoparticles, that just my ears perked up because that everybody has become familiar with that because of the COVID jab, and how those um injections actually ended up all over the body because of those lipid nanoparticles being able to like break those barriers and get into the bloodstream and various organs so like mm -hmm. again the question arises what happens if you ingest that and yes. uh right right so nobody knows they're not testing because it's it's promoted as food and not as a pharmaceutical so there are not going to be any clinical trials and See, there that was right there is insane <laughs> yeah. that's just i mean it's just unbelievable and the the regulations i i know you've covered some stuff on the regulations and the trends that we're seeing um around this as well and and it's shocking how laxed it all is mm hmm so there currently there's only one cell culture meat product on the market and it's being sold in Singapore. So and in the US there has been an approval a, a partial approval by the FDA so it's co-regulated by the FDA and the USDA and the FDA has has done their, their part of the re, uh, approval I thought for for eat just a product but the uh -huh. USDA still has to do their share, but that, yeah, they they already taken a major hurdle. Right. But this should this stuff should not, yeah, it, it should, 
ever come to market, <laughs> ever come to market. All right. So, so now once they have gone through all that work, they're putting a lot into this, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Once yes. they've gotten to that point and now they have these, these cell lines that they can start growing. Mm-hmm. Now, what does it look like? What happens in these facilities? Um, well, yeah, like, like I said, this is how the uh, production process goes, but with the cell line, that's actually very interesting because, uh, for my reporting on the COVID injection, the mRNA injection campaign, I reported on the use of fetal cell lines to culture these so-called vaccines. Right. Um, and there have been a number of investigative journalists that have done really good deep dives on on how these these cell lines were created, and basically they were they were made from the, the cells were harvested from live fetuses, and it's very difficult to get to get a cell line, so you need a lot of fetuses before you have a working cell line. And this is known and documented about the human cell lines. And what they say about the lab-grown meat is that one of the biggest bottlenecks is that there are no cell lines publicly available. Hmm. And the first cell line that uh, that was documented from a cow was published in 2018. And they started something that they call cell tissue bank to create such a like a cell line depository. And for now, it just has one cell line, I believe, from Japanese quill. I'm not 100% certain, but from some animal that nobody's really interested in. And the other problem is, is like, because these cells are so difficult to culture, these existing cell lines, for example, this HeLa cell line, it is what they call characterized. So they know how these cells behave. They know the genetic makeup. They know how fast they grow. They know the kind of culture that they need. And um, it not only is it difficult to create a new cell line, but you need to develop a whole lot of body of knowledge to make it work well. And basically they're admitting that this, this knowledge and these cell lines are not there. But that raises a whole new question that if they if good cell lines are not accessible, what are they exactly using? That was going to be my question. I mean, um, are they using just fetal cell lines of animals or human babies? Or do we know? Or both. Um, well, basically, no, we don't know. But um, so there are some. So the, these existing cell lines. Like what I think is, just if if you don't have a good working cell line, there are in tissue banks these existing cell lines, such as the HeLa cell line, such as some of these fetal cell lines that have been around for uh, for decades. Um, that one of the researchers admitted, like we're using mouse cell lines, um, because we don't have cow or pig or other kind of cell lines. 
some of these companies, they say that they have cell lines, but all, all proprietary information. And um, I think in two or three research articles, they said, well, actually, all the knowledge that we have is about human cell lines. But if we would use that, that would raise some ethical questions. So what's being sold in Singapore? It's a chicken nuggets. From what? <laughs> <laughs> well, they say from chicken. And and, and uh, quite a lot of these companies, they say that they're using primary cells. Okay. Um, but that raises a lot of questions because they, if, if you really want to bring this to scale, then they would need uh, uh, a cell line that proliferates very, very quickly. And you can never do that with a primary cell culture. Absolutely crazy. So, so the big meat packers and food conglomerates mm -hmm. who, uh, I already know, you know, from my own research, Tyson and Smithfields are involved in this. Um, mm -hmm. who are some of the others that you've come across that are, are investing in this and. Oh, I have to, I'm not so good at all. This. Well, I would like to refer to one report. It's called the Food Barons. It's by the ETC group. And what they document is that the whole food industry, they divide it up in, I think, 12 or 13 sectors. And they show that in each of these sectors, uh, three or four companies have an oligopoly position. So they dominate the complete market. They determine the, uh, the policies. They can lobby for the, the government. Um, they, they have enormous market power. So in these uh, meat segments that basically not just the oligopoly players, but all the players in um, of th that they listed that uh, produce meat or chicken or poultry, all of them have have a division for alternative proteins, including mm -hmm. lab-grown meats. So it's not so much like who is investing in it. You would have to look for who is not. Right. And right. So that's that... also Cargill. Yes. Oh, that's a very yeah. big player. Yes. Oh, yeah. TBS yeah. is a big one. Yeah. Um, and you have this, uh, this institute. It's called the FAIR Initiative. And they represent uh, trillions in institutional investors. And basically, they developed this ESG scoring mm -hmm. to say regular food is bad and this stuff is is good. But by using environmental, social and government scoring, they uh, basically uh, yeah, try to attract funding for these kinds of initiatives and, um, yeah, and, and, and detract funding from what they consider as harmful. And that group you have listed as, um, you know, 28% of the largest food firms, including Unilever, Conagra, Nestle, Tesco's, uh, Sansbury's. That's just, yes. not, that's and, not a shocker and, there. No, and they, they use the scoring to shift their product portfolios. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. What's really oh, interesting. Yeah. So, 
what's interesting to me is how they sell this as climate friendly or sustainable Oh, yeah. and how you really debunk that in this incredible report that you've done. Can you talk about how um, the processing, how there's so much cleanup, there's so much contamination and there's hazardous waste Yeah. Mm -hmm. and it, and it, it requires a lot of energy to produce it? Enormous amount of energy. So basically, th th this was my big question because, you know, this is a very, this is not like baking a cake. This is a very high tech, uh, leading edge kind of technology. What, whatever you are, our judgments about it are, it's not easy to make this. So you need major capital investments. You need to attract very skilled, knowledgeable employees. And even the employees that are not uh, like a university educated or like blue collar workers, you need to train them in, in, in the quality system, in dealing with things in the right way. Because these cell cultures, if, you, if they're, they're very easily contaminated, and what happens then is that the bacteria grow much faster than the cells. So you have a bacteria culture. And you can grow, you can throw everything away. It's a waste product. So to make this in the right way, it needs to be super hygienic and so much so that they need to work in clean rooms. And clean rooms are, are basically airlocked um, spaces where uh, the, the employees even need to de decontaminate or even put on hazmat suits to uh, before entering it. And in the cost calculations of the Good Food Institute, so that was one of these NGOs that is pushing this, they say, well, we're going to use food-grade systems. But um, Joe Fassler of the counter, he, he spoke to a number of Uh, chemical engineers that have experience with setting up these type of uh, processes and he published he published a very good article about it i can recommend it uh, it's called uh, lab grow meat is supposed to be an inevitable but the science tells otherwise and basically what the, these chemical engineers say is that if you're not going to use pharma grades these clean room uh, standards then you're not going to be able to produce this stuff. But what this means is that, so you have very advanced equipment and you need not just one of these bioreactors, but you need a lot of bioreactors to move the cell culture from one culture to another. And, um, and you need to keep these clean rooms, they cost a lot of energy. To because sometimes these the air quality is uh, is contained in parts per billion, so um so, so the whole operation is enormously energy intensive, and as you can imagine, if it needs to be that clean, you need to do a lot of cleaning, and they also promote this lab grown meat as being um it, it will help against antibiotic resistance. because the the large scale cattle farming is so so damaging but if you look at these type of processes then 
the process and need antibiotics and anti-fungicides because again otherwise the, these batches need to be these these bioreactors need to be con decontaminated very thoroughly otherwise you cannot even grow a new batch and what i know of these pharmaceutical processes at least from some companies i worked with in europe is that this type of waste needed to be processed by dedicated waste suppliers. You cannot just throw this down the drain. And I have sent emails to multiple uh, waste processing agencies and also uh, like to the Dutch government and the EU asking, okay, um, for this product, if it's the pharmaceutical process, but in this case, the, the end product is food how will this be discarded and nobody was willing to answer me <laughs> that is crazy absolutely crazy and it it makes me think of um all the energy that's used to do these indoor vertical facilities all in the name mm -hmm. of climate change and saving on energy and water and 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 if they're disposing having to dispose of this stuff in this way and literally wear hazmat suits do it is this something we really want to ingest I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy absolutely crazy do we have millions or billions going into this industry right now Elsa? billions 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 and, and, it's all and venture have... capital and and billionaires on a mission like uh peter thiel and bill gates and there are a number of others mm-hmm as well as government providing funding to kind of build up the infrastructure no yes so that's interesting. So first you had this kind of new harvest that put the research on the map. Then you see the Good Food Institute taking it over or taking it over. Both of the NGOs still exist, but Good Food Institute, they bring together, they, they are lobbying governments. They are part of the um, Codex Elementarius of the UN. They mm -hmm. are doing litigation. They have offices in the U.S., in Europe, in Brazil, in Asia, and with over 100 employees, all by uh, donors that wish to be remain anonymous. <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, but what they do is like enormous amount of work. Like this is a big operation. Um, and, and, and so they bring together these uh the food conglomerates so the incumbents the startups but also the, the kind of knowledge that is necessary so it's pharmaceutical knowledge but it's also food technology and um yeah and and uh, developing the also attracting funding for research from a lot of uh, sources but what they recognize is that where's where in a lot of cases you can have a startup that has a product and you can bring it to market, this product needs an infrastructure. And um, they, even though they have their pilot project, it's not really, it's very difficult to scale this. And now you see in the last two years, really all these kind of consortia um, popping up and many of them also funded by government, uh, governments but consortia that bring all these parties together to bring this to market. And if you look at the combined kind of market and knowledge power and government power of these parties, it's it's 
pretty concerning, actually, I think. So so what are they predicting? You know, we always hear by 2025 or by 2030 or by 2050. So what, what are their predictions on the lab-grown meat industry? That's interesting. There's an article in Mother Jones. I forget the title of it, but they <laughs> shown uh, uh, it's uh, a whole list of missed deadlines. So they've been, been predicting. Oh, I'm going to have to find that. <laughs> Uh, a lot of times and basically they have a history of of over seven eight years of missing deadlines and what's interesting too because these startups have already attracted literally billions of dollars in investments and only one of them is selling a product at right. a loss <laughs> at a loss right right so right. so they're pouring billions into this with mm -hmm. zero um interest from consumers on consuming any of this mm -hmm. so it leads you to wonder why and and um Corey, i don't know if you want to get into that that right now but um you know what are the real motivations and kind of going back to the origins and uh, with new harvest and their ties to the intelligence community and also methany uh, you went kind of a little bit more into depth about um his background and you know a possible motivation for this as far as all why governments would be interested in producing alternative food sources mm -hmm. and, you... and what is the consumer acceptance of this because i know you covered that in your report as well consumers don't want to eat it that's very <laughs> <true>. <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's been there's been surveys on this right yes and like i said they formulate the questions in different ways but Overall, more than half of the people are not interested in eating it. I think so, that, that I thought, I don't know how, how you would, sometimes it's like 30 or 40% is willing to try. And then I thought, oh, this is the, the woke, the woke right? section of our population that buys in all, into all these other agendas as well. So is that what they said in this study? That thirty to forty percent said they'd try it. Um, I have to I have to look at the exact exact numbers, but it really depends. So if they say, "Do you want to try an alternative meat product, or do you want to eat something that's slaughter free?" and then people say yes, oh, and if right. you say, "Do you want to eat a, a laboratory grown cell culture?" and then most people say no. <laughs> it really depends how to ask the question. So, so then that's, see, that's just it. And so I know you and Catherine talked about this a little bit. And while I was listening to the two of you talk about it, I had a whole other theory on this. Um, so let's get into the whole. What's your theory? <laughs> <laughs> the whole transhumanism aspect of this. Well, so they're pouring billions into this. There's, there's, it's clearly a global agenda. Mm -hmm. um obviously we've got you know darpa we've got mad scientists we got frankenstonian people into this so i look at it and i go you know the the process in which they're using i feel like is cover for a whole other level of experimentation they're doing mm -hmm. that if, that they're not allowed to net like in the u.s for example 
we can't do cloning and, and grow babies. And uh, even though they talk about how you soon you'll be able to customize the DNA of your child. Um, I believe that this could potentially be, I mean, it, it could be several things, but mm-hmm. I think part of it is, um, I think part of it does have to do with trying to crash our whole food system and the farmers and the ranchers. And we see that rolling out now with the uh, weather modification programs and the intentional droughts. And we're going to come in and save the day with our rainfall tech and our water and, and, um, and, and put some reg- regulations in place because at least in the U.S., I think farms and ranches and ag makes up like a third. Um, so, so there's that whole aspect. Mm-hmm. And then, but I feel like I've, I've, we've been watching, I know, Edge, you did uh, a report having to do with uh, using a, a different womb for babies mm-hmm. yep. um, and where, mm-hmm. and what country was that being studied in? Several countries. Um, but yeah, in um, Europe, there was, there's a study going on currently to make the, um, it, it's a synthetic womb, um, but they've done studies here in um, the U.S. Um, I believe it was, I want to say it was Boston University, or I'm sorry, I might be getting that wrong. One of the universities recently successfully um, grew the fetuses of baby lambs in these um, in these synthetic wombs. But yeah, there's definitely two different ap- approaches. Uh, one is more of like a way of um, helping pre, uh, premature babies survive. Um, but the mother, the other direction of going is actually, uh, growing babies from the, you know, um, cell in, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's where we get into the ethics of it all. Um, and I, I there was another study out of, um, Israel that was quite successful with that, um, so hmm. yeah, there, there's a Israel. lot of, adva- mm-hmm, a <laughs> lot of advancements going on in that and a lot of ethical questions that come into play with regards to using human fetal cells and, and that sort of thing. I mean, well, the bottom line is that, you... hmm? sorry, no, I was just going to say, they know this is never going to come to market. They know it's never going to be affordable as, as edible food. And that even if it was, people are not interested in eating it. So it's, it's definitely, cover for other things so go ahead Elsa yeah because it's interesting when you mention the cloning because the Roslin Institute is famous for cloning Dolly the sheep but after that they dived into stem cell research and now they are a major player in delivering cell lines for the cell culture meat industry Uh interesting interesting Yeah, you do talk a lot about um, when you were speaking with Catherine, as well as in your report, about the underlying transhumanist agenda and really this crossover between the two sectors of the lab-grown meat and cellular Mm -hmm. rejuvenation, that aspect of things, because there is a lot of crossover there, and that does seem to really uh, support a a transhumanist agenda of, of you know, billionaires wanting to be able to live forever and we need to just push this sort of technology forward because it has multiple purposes. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Yeah, that that's interesting too because the the process of culturing of of finding out like culturing these cells and and finding out what makes them live or what makes them die is also one of the key questions of regenerative medicine. And sometimes it's also mm-hmm. called uh, tissue engineering. So then you find out and and so the regenerative medicine is more looking at stem cells um as stem cells as a way to heal the body and tissue engineering more on culturing cells and put them in a structure and then apply them uh, to the body. But what's interesting is that the technologies are exactly not just a little bit similar or they're exactly the same technologies and processes as for pharma food, uh, but only the purpose is different. And if you read some of these uh, reports about um, like these billionaire conferences into regenerative medicine, then you see that they even grow, they they threw more billions of dollars at that than at just the the lab-grown meats. But my sense was that they are running into limits and of course you can if if you're this rich you can buy off a lot of scientists but even that has its limits and what you see now is that a whole infrastructure is being um so so you have many universities that are developing programs to train students in this knowledge and these students think that they are saving the world from climate change by studying this and developing this this uh technology and I think they would not be able to tr- attract because it's not purely about money. It's about government funding. It's about people being engaged. It's about multiple university programs. They cannot just buy off all this stuff. But now through Lab Grow Meets, you get all this knowledge development. And the knowledge development is exactly the same as for regenerative medicine. And it's actually, I, I cite a lot of examples in the report, it's it's recognized by these scientists that it's the same process and that there are crossovers. That is very interesting. Oh yeah, they're, they're definitely up to, I mean, with everything they're doing, with so many of the different agendas we've all covered, it is, they, they want to turn this into a synthetic world. Yes, that's it's, very clear. Uh, right, crazy. I found it. I found it really interesting um, when you going back to Metheny and New Harvest and his background um, about how he 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 may have had a possible motivation kind of because of his history and working with um, I think it was a university where you know he was he his task was to sort of analyze and prepare for catastrophic events and that kind of a mm-hmm. thing. And so, you know, you posited this sort of theory when talking to uh, Catherine Austin Fitz of, you know, maybe this is sort of one underlying reason of why maybe the intelligence communities or governments are willing to pour billions into this is, you know, if they foresee the potential of some sort of catastrophic catastrophic event where they would need to uh, be able to produce foods, you know, um, other than the the natural way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was actually, it was a really important moment in my research because I was reading all these papers and I was thinking, this is so awful. This is so crazy. I need a new word for insane. (laughs) And, And it became kind of frustrating and repetitive. And 
at some point I thought, under what circumstances would this be rational? Right. And then I thought, okay, if you expect a really big cataclysm um, by which you cannot grow food anymore, then it would actually make sense to have a lot of ways to grow food indoors or underground or somewhere. If you think that somehow there won't be sunlight for a long time, then right. um, then a vertical farm or this type of process would make sense. And then I thought about, the, of course, the NASA, uh, the NASA project that was the first project about space journeys. Because that's interesting too. So there's this uh, company, it's called Aleph Farms. It's an Israeli um, fake meat company. And they brought a cell culture to with a SpaceX rocket to the International Space Station hmm. to, uh, to see if they could grow cells in zero gravity. Interesting. And then if you look at Metheny, he has a widely cited, very long paper discussing possible cataclysms that can wipe out that can be possibly wipe out humanity and um so being hit by yeah that's so so being hit by a comet or an asteroid or a mega volcano bursting out or the um, the, the pole shifting uh, so he has a long list and um Catherine also mentioned the Maunder minimum. So that's if there's a low solar activity, then that can be the start of a little ice age. And that would also be a big problem to grow grow food. So he goes through all of the a long list and also nano materials going rampant. <laughs> I thought that's odd if you work for DARPA. <laughs> right. So you're creating the problem that you're listing, that you're putting on your list. Yeah, that yeah, I thought that was odd. But um but if you, so he goes through all these uh uh potentially like completely catastrophic risks and then he cites a number of of thinkers and scientists that say, well Earth is just there's too much risk on Earth, so we need to build a multiplanetary civilization. There needs to be redundancy uh, if you really want humanity to survive. And he cites the other example. He says we know that there are underground bases, uh, but the, but for enough people to survive, they should be built on a much larger scale. Well, but also the thing is, they don't want us to survive. They only want them to survive. So what mm. are we talking? A few thousand people. So are they going to put all this money into wanting to eat lab-grown meat for themselves if something like that were to happen? Uh, you know, mm. I mean, they're doing everything they can to take out humanity right now, sadly. So, uh, so I don't know. So I go back and forth on that whole theory. Well, what's interesting too is that well you see all these these big operations where you see that they're fundamentally changing what it means to be human mm -hmm. and i also thought is this purely like their insane ideology or is part of this also a reaction to some of the cataclysms that they expect are coming so they think the, that these types of changes are necessary. Right. Yeah. Hmm. And then also, um, 
I like how you've tied in um, their plans for um, rolling this out and creating a market for it by intentionally designing food shortages and sort of like funneling people in through the, you know, digital ID, CBD system with, mm -hmm. with food at literally as the carrot, right? Mm -hmm. So people need um, food assistance um, in order to get that, they have to, you know, sign up for their digital ID, CBDC or whatever it is, right? Exactly. Yes, and I think this is one of the real nasty parts of this because in the last couple of years, so many people have been bankrupted and it made impossible for them to make a living by themselves. And now they are, they are getting all these fake lifelines by governments saying, yeah, basically offering food stamps. But, um, but if you see the kind of food system that they're putting in place, this is not the food that you want to be dependent on. And I think also, as long as people are still uh, like healthy and capable to to get their own food and make their own money, they it will be very difficult to get them to sign up for the slavery system. But hungry people are very desperate. So right. I think, sorry. <coughs> um, and, and this has already happened like in the us like a lot of people are you, you written about this Corey, about all these different um like snap and there there's these different food programs and oh, yeah. behind it you see the the rockefeller food is medicine like doctors should prescribe food as medicine right um and then if you look at what they're they wanted to prescribe yeah you don't want to be this dependent on this Right. Absolutely. I was just sitting here uh, reading this section you have about the uh, investments from the Department of Defense um, are driving the Synbio field uh, 820 million between 2008 and 2017, according to Wolfson, with two thirds, 67 percent of that funding going to DOD's DARPA branch, mm -hmm. DARPA's Living Foundries program, which I'm not even I'm not familiar with that initiated in 2012 shows how this money was not only invested in secretive projects but has spurred other actors in society to apply symbio approaches by working with academic and corporate researchers and new players who will not have to be who will not have to be experienced in genetics to design new biological systems that's scary and so symbio is synthetic biology and these are the um these are the genetically modified bacteria microorganisms fungi um algae right boy boy so, boy 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 and then we have the the insects on top of this right <laughs> yes so I was, yeah i was going to ask you to to talk about the insects and or lab grown meat and uh, feeding livestock and pets. Oh, Can right. Talk about that. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, um, so, so these insects are already, so the largest insect farm is located in the Netherlands. And um, these products are already processed for pets and for cattle. And what there was one study that tested i think 300 insect farms and they found that uh, at 244 of them the insects carries 
parasites. Mm. A lot of these parasites are bad for humans too. But what I think is that uh, some animals, like reptiles, they are made. They, they their digestive system are is made to to eat insects, so they won't get sick. But right. your cat or your dog or a human, our stomach is not made for it. So, um, so these parasites they get into your system, and then you get parasite infestations. And for humans, not so many insects have been approved in the in the EU. I think it's four or five. But uh, people should start watching out, but the, because they will mix it in with the ingredients with other, uh, like like with flour and and muesli bars and things like that. But um, it's already in a lot of pet food. So some of my readers have been sending me pictures where they suddenly saw that that their their pet food had like it mentioned like hundred percent insect protein, and they were like, "No, I'm not going to feed my cat this." Right. But uh, if you feed that to your to your dog or cat, it's known that pets are a vector for par- parasites from animals to humans. So even if you're still avoiding insects, but your 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 pets are eating this food that's laced with insects and they get a lot of parasites. I think that's not just bad for your pets, but it's probably harmful for you as well. And they are feeding this to cattle. So how healthy is the meat of cows that have been fed insects? Which is which is why we have to stick with our local farmers and grass fed and yeah. So, so how do we, uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts Elsa, on, uh, combating this and, um, keeping our eyes on this and kind of navigating this system they're trying to build? Well, I think it's really important. And I know not uh, like if you're in the middle of a very big ci- city, it's becoming more, uh, challenging, right? but I think Whatever situation you are in, try to do everything to get food independence or food resilience or try to connect with a local farmer, speak with your farmer. Yeah, because it's, I think maintaining our health and food independence is going to be one of the most important acts of resistance against, um, against the CBDC system. Right. Because this is how they will try to get us in. And I know, like, I've tried to start a vegetable garden multiple times, and I just don't have the time for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I hear you there. Um, so, but still, like, like, I cite this example that um, the Solari team put up. Is in the Second World War, they started these victory gardens. And within two years, 40% of the national produce was produced in these victory gardens, which were, which were vegetable gardens in, in, in the parks, in cities, in windowsills, in, in balconies. In, so wherever you can find place to do this. Um, and yeah, that was possible in relatively short time. So I think these are the kind of networks that we need to start setting up. And for example, the spring is starting now. So you can go on guerrilla gardening hikes and I don't know, 
plant potatoes <laughs> in <Right>? random places. <laughs> um, so yeah, so 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 I think we need to be very creative and think about what's possible in your area, and it's very area dependent. And um, I know it's not easy, but I think it's very important. And I think it's important people continue to expose this and let others know about it because we don't know how they're going to come out with labeling. We don't know if this is going to yeah. come to market or how they're going to move forward with this. I, I still think this is a some scientific experiments um, as opposed to food, but nonetheless, people need to be aware of it and keep their eyes on it. It's like I was at my dad's the other day. And mm -hmm. I was snacky and he had a box of crackers on the counter and I go to grab it and I flip it over and I look at the ingredients and there it is. The very last line, this contains bioengineered food ingredients. I'm like, dad, what yes. are you doing? I told you to start reading the labels because it's, it's <laughs> turning up on everything now, you know? Yeah. So that's actually very important. So the lab grown meat is not on the market yet, but a lot of this precision fermented stuff is, and it's called uh, dairy, like animal free dairy products, for example, right. but it's in a lot of products and, um, and you really need to avoid this, I believe. Because well, and it's not, it's not marked on some of the products, right? Like I know you were talking no. about the milk specifically. Yes. So, so this is, for example, an infant formula. It's produced by genetically manipulated E. coli bacteria. So, and they say that because these bacteria or these GMOs are not in the end product, it can be sold. But what is the quality control? How are you sure that these bacteria are not in the product and that they're dead? And what I also find very um, uh, interesting as we spoke to the previous time about this one health philosophy of the UN. And basically they say anything like nature and animals and people, everyone can be a source of uh, pathogens. So everything must, must be surveyed for pathogen surveillance and sewer surveillance. And if anything happens, everything needs to go in lockdown. So not just the people, but also the animals, etc. And at the same time, they're introducing they're introducing insects that are invested right. with parasites and at the same time they're flooding the market unlabeled with genetically modified bacteria so what can possibly go wrong here <laughs> it exposes the the true agenda because everything they say it's like for your health while at the same time, very clearly, they're trying to destroy our health through the food system. Yes. So eat pure food, non-processed from a farmer that you trust, where it's just out of the ground. As, as Process as little as possible. That's the best way to go. Yeah. So Elsa, yes. tell everyone where they can find you. I know you're on social media and you have a website. You can let people know that. Yeah, so um, perhaps you can put the website in the, um, in the commentary. So it's my name, um, vanhavelen.eu. That's my website. And you can write, uh, you can subscribe for my newsletter. It's free, but I haven't sent it in a while. And I write for the Andere Krant, which is a Dutch newspaper. And if I do interviews, then they are on that. Uh, YouTube channel and those interviews are in English but a lot of my articles are in 
in um, Dutch. And of course, the Solari wrap-up on pharma food, you can find it on the Solari report of Catherine Austin Fitz. And you're also on Twitter and Gab, correct? Yes. Um, okay. Yes. I tried Gab, but there are just not so many people on it yet. And Twitter is, yeah, well, Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was extremely informative. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope it was interesting. Oh, yeah, definitely. Very, <laughs> very interesting, enlightening. And I hope uh, everybody listening got as much out of it as we did. Thank you so much, Elza, for joining us today. We appreciate it. And uh, you guys, we will leave some just, uh, links in the description for you to find Elza and support her work. Thanks so much for joining us today here on Dig It. Please be sure to share this podcast. We're on BitChute, Foxhole, Gab TV, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Pilled, Rumble, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, tune in no longer on youtube so please be sure to subscribe to our other platforms and we'll see you back next time right here on dig it